Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right. We are doing a four-way today. We're joined by Ben, uh, Matt, one of your colleagues at Sunpoint, which we're happy to be uh Happy to have him on here because the subject we're going to tackle is one that um, can be very wide ranging. And we're going to try to do our best to um, get at some of the major uh, things that people, that, you know, clients and investors should be thinking about. And that's this idea of estate planning. I think that probably where all of us are, are in our lives, given how old our parents are and given certain things that are happening in that demographic group, you know, this idea of the state planning, whether it's complex estates or more simpler estates, you know, I think is uh, certainly we're going to be seeing more of it in our personal life. And Matt and Ben, I know you guys, you know, deal with this regularly for your clients. So where we would start or where I'd like to start is just let's try to get at, Matt, you know, what is estate planning? REM, it's the end of the world as we know it, is basically, basically the estate planning anthem because the end of the world as we know it is not about necessarily Armageddon in this case, but it's, I'm going to emphasize as we know it. And there's that part towards the end of the song where you kind of get the time I had some time alone refrain. Like what estate planning literally is, is it's any and every conversation around, around this concept of not just you're going to die, full stop, you're going to die. So what happens if I live longer than I expect? What happens if I get sick? Uh, what happens if I get sued? What happens to the people I care about around me and what they're going to do with these assets and whatever else? In a state is just literally the, in whatever world or country or whatever you own, it's in that common law system, your estate is the stuff you have. So what happens if I live? What if I get sick? What if I get, what happens if I get sued to my stuff? Because my world has changed for some way. And estate planning is the reality of saying beyond just dying, what else do I need to do to prepare the other people who my property may benefit or, or hurt if it's a debt? What do I need to do to prepare those people for those scenarios of live, die, get sick, get sued, et cetera? Before I do my follow-up questions, I just want to say welcome, Ben, because uh, you know we're, we're going to need some concrete stuff here to couple with Matt's REM and all this other stuff we're going to go through here. So... Uh... I, th I think you're going to help us to deliver the goods on the concrete side of this stuff. We'll see. We'll see. We're not a state attorneys, but I'll probably say that 87 more times during this recording. But yes. And that's, this is critical. Ben has to be there to keep me out of trouble, much like he does at some point, because I'll talk about REM, but he's going to steer us back on track of how trusts work. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think about estate planning, think about the estate tax. And we're going to talk about that later. But I think that's a mistake to a large extent, because... There, there's so much else going on. I mean, I mean, we know Matt, you know, flies private jets to his various mansions throughout the country and has a team of estate attorneys to help him with the estate tax part of it. But for the rest of us who aren't going to be above a certain limit, um, you know, other things that are going on are much more important than the tax part of this. And so I'm wondering if you guys could start. Maybe we could just talk about what what some of those other things are, what some of the key elements of an estate plan are. Yeah. So like, let's hit some of the the basic items or the simple items. So let's start with the last will. And this is you know, simply saying the goal here is to lay out your wishes for who's going to receive what when you pass away. In Matt's scenario of we're passing away, we're going to pass assets. Or in some other scenarios, you may have children that are below the age of majority and you have to set up guardianship. So you have to have that tough conversation with who is going to take over as the parent or the custodian in that scenario. So that's in like the death side of things. Then you have your power of attorney. 
if you become disabled or you become in a scenario or you're incompetent, you can't make decisions, you need somebody to help with some of those healthcare directives and making financial decisions on your behalf. Those are some of the big, like simple items that you always want to have taken care of within an estate plan. Because, you know, if you think about the healthcare directives, do you want your spouse, your brother, your mother, your dad making the decision on what to do with you while you're laying on your deathbed? Or do you want to make that decision for them so they don't have to get that emotionally connected to it? It's already all drawn out. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to follow this procedure. It removes a lot of that emotional, you know, guilt that gets put on to other family members when we file these uh, legal documents ahead of time. And just in following up on the will piece, I think we should probably talk a little bit about probate because one of the things people don't think about a lot is, well, if I don't have a will, what actually happens? And that, that was a big eye-opening thing for me when I took the CFP exam because I didn't know a lot about this stuff. So can you guys just talk a little bit about probate and sort of the importance of a will and what happens if you don't have one? Yeah, I mean, like the, when you hear probate, it almost is always followed by some negative comment. There's certain things that are, are going to go through probate. But if we can avoid that, that's ultimately what, what, what we want to do. And when we think about probate, you're letting a court decide. What we're trying to do with an estate plan is not allow any other parties decide what we're doing with your assets. And that's exactly what probate is doing. We're just taking it into the legal system when we can avoid that. If you think about the simple way to avoid probate is you know, Jack, maybe you have an IRA, an individual retirement account, and you name a beneficiary. Well, naming a beneficiary automatically avoids probate. That asset is going to move. It's going to flow from you to that primary beneficiary in the event of your passing, which avoids probate. We want to do that at, at, at all costs to not have this go through the legal system. The big, the yeah. big connect here to, uh, to excess returns is this is having a systematic, um, a systematic process for navigating probate so you don't muck things up because you forgot which one of the kids is in the will and which one you took out for who inherits, you know, the beach house. Well, if there was a way to have a quantitative will, Matt, I, I would be all over that. Uh, <laughs> if I could have, if I could write some code and get this done, I, I would do it. But, but that's, well, this is, this is literally what this is. It's saying, I'm going to pre-think through these scenarios so that it's systematically, quantitatively defined to the best of my ability. And that way, when it hits probate, when it hits the court system, it's like, oh, everybody already agreed. We have the answer. We don't have to sit down and figure out who owes the property tax on you know, the, the double wide trailer that uh, Matt's been living in. You can, and, and it can be really tough, right? Because I think all the states sort of, like if you don't have a will, all the states handle it differently. So, you know, there's a lot of horror stories about like what happens to, I mean, what happens to the kids, what happens to the assets? Like you're putting all of that in the complete hands of a court and, and it changes state by state in terms of what they're going to do with that. Not just states, your town too. Like this, this goes into layers. Ben, you want to, I'm staying away from horror stories. I got stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if we, if we wind it back to the guardianship side of things. I think the you know, kids are probably arguably the most important asset that you have as a parent. And the states set an age of majority for that is when a child is able to get access to some of the assets. And I get the, you know, the example will be, you have a life insurance policy, you named your spouse as the primary and you named your kid who's six as the secondary. We see this all the time. This happens a lot. You and your spouse catastrophically pass away. Sorry, Matt, we're going to use a bad scenario. I know you were trying to avoid that. You, you tragically pass away. Well, that insurance policy needs to be paid out. Well, the primary is deceased with you. The secondary is six years old. Age of majority in many states, so 18 through 21. That means that money could be tied up until, that, until the six-year-old turns 18 or 21. Well, how do you provide liquidity to you know, provide the lifestyle for that six-year-old for the next 12 to 15 years. That's the, those are the scenarios within the state plan that we're exactly trying to avoid. Obviously that is the doom and gloom, but that's how the state layers into all of this. You know, maybe the, you know, the fed doesn't care, but your state has a majority number that a child needs to be before they can access those dollars. Or can we just talk a little bit about the key people here? I know like on, on a will, you've got an executor, you know, if, if trusts are involved, you have a trustee, obviously on the healthcare directives, 
you know, you, you've got to make a decision about who's making those decisions. You know, obviously I want to avoid using people like Justin because he might just pull the plug on me and like take over the excess returns empire, <laughs> which, uh, which we don't want. But can you just talk about like some of the key people and, and how the decision-making process works of choosing those people? Yeah. So I, you know, you think about you're choosing the executor. This person's going to carry out exactly what you put in that will. How you're going to decide that person, I would say for any of these people, trustworthiness is the primary objective. We need somebody that you're going to trust with your life and your healthcare uh, decisions as well. Obviously, it's getting put into legal documents, but obviously somebody that's trustworthy, that should be the number one factor. A, a trustee is going to be pretty similar to the executor. They're going to be carrying out the exact items that you have lied, put in the legal document. They're just executing on it for you. Those are the two big ones that are... A, a, sometimes can be synonymous with each other. Healthcare directive, this person is just going to be reading the document and, and it goes into very specific terms. And and to, to go to that language, do you want a feeding tube? When do you want oxygen cut off? Like all that stuff you're going to make decisions on ahead of time. It's not a fun conversation, but it is necessary. That person is just going to carry out your wishes. A financial power of attorney is another one that I mentioned at the beginning that's really important. You're making the decision on who this person is. Doesn't have to be the same person as your spouse either. You can have you can have separate healthcare directives. You can have separate financial power of attorneys. This person is going to make sure your financial affairs are taken care of and give you give them access to accounts to be able to pay for things. Maybe the mortgage, maybe it's the funeral costs, making sure that they have access to money that is being used for you rather than them reaching into their own pocket to cover costs while we wait for some of these processes to build out. Trustees have to be trusty. That's rule number one. Your powers of attorneys and everybody else, you got to make sure. So like before you're gone to, you got to pick. Again, I got nightmare stories on top of nightmare stories of siblings where one of them is responsible, but they're the power of attorney because they're the one who's still around and now they're mooching off mom's money. And then nobody knows until mom's passed away. And then all of a sudden you got this whole drama unfolding and calling back courts and bringing up trust documents and everything else. Like it gets ugly. So the trustees have to be trusty. You got to know who the beneficiary beneficiaries are of everything. So for the benefit of, and you have to understand how all these documents talk to each other. This is not stuff people should do alone. This is why our profession exists, why the lawyers exist, why the accountants exist. Don't try this at home. Yeah, Matt, you know, the nightmare stories comes up on a lot of our episodes. So we'll have to do like an anonymous nightmare story episode at some point where we, we just tell nightmare stories related to all the various topics we've covered on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, CSI excess returns. <laughs> Yeah, before we transition to the estate tax, the one thing we should say, and you guys mentioned it, is, you know, th this is something that should be handled typically by an attorney. So, you know, you're, you're looking at four guys who are not attorneys right now. Um, so we're giving kind of a high level. But, you know, for me, it was very actually eye opening when I did this. When, I, when we first had our first kid, we did this. And like how much there was that I didn't know about was, was pretty amazing when I met with the attorney, like all the stuff that I had to do that I didn't even think about. Um, so there's def it's definitely worth meeting an attorney. And, you know, they're, they're definitely going to probably for most people going to find some things you, you wouldn't otherwise think of. Yeah, I think some of their, like the important part there, Jack, we did the same thing. When you sit down and you could ask questions about how things are worded, how it is worded is how it's going to be carried out. And it's critical. Anybody that's read a legal document knows that they use some different jargon in there. It's oftentimes tough to understand what that is. And we work in the industry and it's still tough for us to maybe understand when we're reading through financial directives for the power of attorney. I had trouble with some of that language, like, hey, can we simplify some of this stuff that when my brother reads it, who isn't going to have any idea what he's trying to do here, that he's going to understand it. So uh, sitting with an attorney, asking questions, being able to make sure your needs are met is, is critical to this. What's interesting with us is most of our ultra high net worth clients actually have their assets in trusts. Most of them are revocable trusts. Um, we do and have managed in the past some irrevocable trusts, but, and maybe, um, Matt and Ben, you can talk to the difference between revocable and irrevocable, but, uh, I've had to review some of these trusts for different purposes. And it's amazing how detailed and interesting some of these trusts can get from like 
giving out loans to family members, what type of interest rates to um, salaries of people. You know, it's not just how the assets get dispersed. There's you, you really see people's intentions and wishes coming out in these trusts. And I, I, I guess I didn't realize, you know, I always thought that trusts were used as like a, a, a shield or a shelter from being sued for something. Because um, I know a lot of doctors, you know, have tr their assets and trusts, but maybe it's more to avoid maybe the probate thing. But I'll, I'll let you guys kind of talk to your experience with those. Remember, just keep saying this over and over in your head, like all of this stuff, all of this planning is around these ideas of you're going to die. But then what happens if I live? What happens if I get sick? What if happens if I get sued? And to Ben's prior and your conversation back and forth about the importance of the conversation is you have different requirements on the, if I die young, what happens to the kids? If I live to be a 300 years old, like Ricky Bobby said, he might live. What's going to happen if I get sick? What if I'm in a long-term care facility or my spouses or something else for 30 years? Or if I get sued, you're the doctor and you get hit with the malpractice suit. And for some reason, it extends beyond your, your insurance coverages. Your specific scenarios will determine which vehicles are appropriate to possibly put assets of yours in trust in some separate entity type or name, which Ben, I'm going to let you dissect in a second here, uh, for what beneficiaries and which ways. So the conversation of what happens when I die, if I live, if I get sick, if I get sued, that's the whole premise for why there's so many varieties of these and these get so confusing. Uh, ben, I want, if you could just maybe just revocable, irrevocable, uh, grantor, some of those words, and then maybe some of the common trust types that we use at work with clients. Yes. So this simple definition of the you know difference between revocable and irrevocable is exactly in the word revocable. The grantor, the the person who is in control of this, can make a change pretty much whenever they want. Irrevocable pretty much removes that. There's certain layers there that a grantor can still make changes. The verbiage within these trusts is critical. There's there's very few general statements that you could just make about these types of trusts because you can get so customized. To Jack's example, when you're sitting down with a, an estate attorney, you can customize this in whatever way that you want. You can use whatever language that you'd like. You can, to Justin's point, you could set provisions for loans. This is going to kids or grandkids. You can give them, hey, what are the ages that they're allowed to get access to what percentage of the dollars under what circumstances? That's the purpose of this is for you to connect these dollars to sometimes family missions and family values, which is really, really important to some of our high net worth individuals. Yeah. So sh shifting uh, from this to the estate tax part, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about how a lot of people, the estate tax probably won't apply to, but we should talk at a high level about what it is and what the limits are and why that is. So can you guys just talk a little bit about the estate tax, like what it is, what the, what the general limits are and how it works? Yeah. So in today's world, it's it's expensive, and that's why there is such a press to try to avoid it. So it, there is a range, but the upper range gets, you get there really quick at 40% if you run into the estate tax. And federal only. Like we're talking about federal, Correct. every state has their own rules here too. Make sure you're in a state that doesn't have an estate tax. That's what, that's the, the non-legal advice here. Um, there's what, there's like, there's like 10 or so that have one? Is it something like that? It's... It is, yes. A majority of states don't have an estate tax. Um, you can imagine probably the, the popular players in the tax game that have an estate tax that comes along with it. But if you get hit with the 40% and then a state level tax as well, like, you know, you're, you could be missing out on close to half the assets. So that's why there's always such a press for our ultra high net worth assets to try to avoid as much of this as possible. And high net worth too. I want you to say the dollar amounts in a second on this, but high net worth too, especially at the state level, it is critical that you know the rules of what happens to your money when you die. We're going to throw some big numbers around in a second, but even in states like Massachusetts, you cross that million dollar threshold and now you start to get into tax consequences. You got to know local, but let's, let's zoom out to federal since those are the ones the policy people always care about. Yeah, that is 
the ones that they have control over. Uh, so, so today as it stands for 2023 is 12.92 million for a single filer. It's, it's right around 25 for a joint filer and that's the exclusion. So if you have, you're married finally jointly, you have a, you know, $20 million estate. You, you don't really have much to worry about as long as you didn't use any of that gift exclusion prior to getting to passing away and moving your estate from um, your ownership to your heirs or to other beneficiaries. So that's that's the exclusion today. We'll touch on a little bit of maybe where that's heading in the next, you know, three to four years. Yeah, one of the things when I, when I met with the attorney that he pointed out to me is, is a lot of people make the mistake of not realizing what their assets are, particularly if they own a business. So, you know, you might think, well, I don't have that much money in the bank. So, and I, we won't maybe not talk about the 12 million because that's a huge number. But when you get down to some of the lower numbers for the states, someone might say, well, I don't have that much money in the bank, you know, or I don't have that much in my other accounts. Like, I'm not going to be anywhere near this. And then they realize they've got a business that they're making a decent amount of money off every year. And that business has a value and that value is part of their estate. And so you might, some people might be over limits when they don't think they are. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen that. I, I'll say this, I'll say this. And before Ben weighs in, I had a situation with somebody who was a part owner. So the family owned a farm and a lot of this stuff comes out of illiquid private assets. So think about the private, the family business or the, just the business that somebody owns. And once we get into this, we start to get into assets that may not be the most liquid things, but that doesn't mean they don't have a value. And that's kind of the rub. So when we do this type of planning with the attorneys and we start to get into private or harder, harder to value assets, this becomes a really critical step. And it's not just like the excess returns empire when we already know that Justin can do everything Jack can do. So he can just bump him off and hold the keys to the kingdom tomorrow. What do we think, uh, Justin? What do we think we'd value the uh, $220 a month in YouTube revenue? Um, you well, know, I don't well, know if you've got you, a present value of discounted cash flows you could look there. Uh, I, mean, this I, I was going to say, we're, 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 we're a growth. Uh, I want a growth valuation on that. <laughs> yeah, we'll get the growth yeah, like stock. Two million times <laughs> revenue or something. Uh, right. Something like that. Your point about the sort of the illiquid farm, Matt, you know, that can be a big deal for people. You know, you can see because if that's in the estate, the estate's over the limit and the tax has to be paid. Well, the farm's illiquid. So now we've got to, if, if, if the planning is not done properly, we've got a major problem on our hands now where we've got to like sell the farm because we, we didn't plan properly. So that, that's, pro that's probably a good example of how plan how important planning is with things like this. The farm is the case or one of the cases that messed, not messed with my head the most, but was the most, one of the clearest examples where luckily there was money and there was a way that the problem could get solved but it was a real eye-opener. It sent me back into reading about the history of this stuff and the history of why they make certain types of trusts and other things to navigate these these waters and part of why like the some of the estate tax limits are where they are. And that's because you have assets like this that might be hard to sell, but it doesn't mean they don't have value. If if you think about it, like imagine like somebody has a is a cattle rancher or has a cattle farm and they have all these heads of cattle are the kids ready to just come in on the situation and know exactly what to do to run the business? Or is the bank account big enough that if they're across that threshold, because Ben, you just said the numbers, like if you're above those thresholds, the IRS is not looking at a small bill for your table. Right. And, and the other thing that comes into play is, you know, the single owner versus a joint owner. If, you, if you're in a scenario where you have a deceased spouse and you live for you know, 10, 15 years past that time frame, and now you're filing an estate tax return after you passed away and you're only working off that $12.2 million number. Yes, it's big, but if you have a successful farm, that's a $30 million valuation, you might have a big tax bill on your hand that you need to figure out how you're going to pay. And that's why doing some of this planning ahead of time can help try to pass some of those assets over time in a more tax advantageous avenue um, to try to limit you know, that 40% plus whenever possible. The, the succession planning, the transfer of business ownership, uh, having your buy-sell arrangements, having your key man insurance, your key person insurance, knowing what your valuation methodologies are. These are all critical steps. If you're going to build or own a private asset, you have to have in place because it's the only way you're going to deal with the, what if I die? What if I live? What if I get sick? What if I get sued scenarios for the people you care about, which is probably part at least of why you have this asset in the first place.
So just one question here. Um, with retirement accounts, those basically, are those considered, I guess my first question is, are they part of the estate? I know, you know, once you have beneficiaries on those. So once the person, the holder of the account passes away, the IRA gets distributed to the primary or secondary beneficiaries. Um, but are those also considered part of an estate or do they bypass the estate process because they're an IRA? I, I want to say something first and then Ben to the to the degree you want to put on your your faux lawyer hat and answer like what's in probate or not, go for it. The one of the most important things before we talk about that specific question is the things you put on file at your financial institution, your custodian, the beneficiaries on your IRA, transfer on death, uh, TOD, sometimes POD on your bank accounts, brokerage accounts, after tax, things like that. That's what we call supersedes the will. That's what lawyers call supersedes the will. That's what I hope is called supersedes the will. Um, that's the idea that I can have a will, but if on the bank account I have my Another another crazy scenario. You find out somebody got divorced and got remarried 30 years ago. On the old 401k from work, they forgot to do the beneficiary paperwork. An old spouse is listed as the beneficiary, even though the new will and everything else is updated to the new spouse. Person dies. To be honest, guy dies. It's always a guy who forgets to do something like this. And what happens? Now, the ex-wife, because she's the beneficiary on the policy... She's getting that asset. So if you're going to go through the act of naming beneficiaries, of putting stuff into trusts or whatever else, you have to know at what layer that's executed on and what takes priority of the others. What you list with your custodian or your financial institution on this is as good as, in many cases, the will. And for a lot of people, if you just do that, you can get most of the problems done. Ben, I'm putting you on the spot and we can get rid of this if we need to. Do you want to comment on what kind of his point about the IRAs and 401ks, what goes to probate versus what doesn't, what counts towards your taxable estate versus what doesn't? Yeah. So in that scenario, that would count towards your taxable estate. It would not, it would pass through probate. So you would avoid probate in that scenario. The IRA, just like your 401k, you have a named beneficiary. It's going to go directly to them. That will be includable in the taxable in your gross estate. Yeah, this was a big eye-opening thing for me when I did the CFP exam is this idea of the difference between the probate estate and the taxable estate. Like I had no right. idea what that is, but you know, the probate is kind of dealing with how things are going to move around and the taxable is kind of dealing with how the tax is going to be paid. So they can be very different. Like you said, if, if you name a beneficiary, you know, it's not going to go through probate, but it is part of the taxable estate because it's an asset. And so that, that was the right. thing. And, and like to Matt's point before, like the way these accounts are titled, if they're jointly titled or all these other different ways they could be titled, it's like, with probate and stuff, it's such an important thing in terms of how all this ends up being worked out. And like, there was so much more to that when, when I took the CFP exam that I realized before I went in. I, I know someone in Vermont that's actually going through the process of working with probate. And, and this just seems like crazy to me, but they made him do it. He had to put an ad in the local newspaper that basically was like, if this individual uh, owes anyone any debt, like sort of like let's settle up or something. And then he had to show that ad to the probate court, which it's just kind of amazing that this kind of stuff is going on. Like he's putting like ads out there to make sure that the debts, you know, there's no outstanding debts of this individual. You think, you think somebody would be like, Oh yeah. You remember that 10 grand in cash you gave me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You have to prove it. Yeah. So <laughs> right. probate, probate the word is to prove. Like this is where that's the etymology of the word. We're saying to prove. And the probate is literally to prove the will or whatever the other last wishes are. So it's this idea of the act of probate is to prove these things. And if we're going to pay money out, so Vermont's like that. I've got some crazy Connecticut stories like this too. Connecticut and Vermont. I think I've got horror stories for both of those states where you got to put that ad in the paper and there's a day count on how many days that has to run for and be available to say nobody steps forward and mm -hmm. says, wow, isn't it funny how many people die in Connecticut that owe Jack money? <laughs> it would be nice. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to shift to the, you, Ben, you mentioned the gift tax before, and you know, I think a lot of people don't understand that these two are sort of, they work together. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about what the gift tax is and, and sort of how it relates to the estate tax? Yeah, so there's there's like, 
two factors around the gift tax. So you have your annual exclusion amount, which is a much lower amount for maybe somebody in a high net worth situation of 17,000 for 2023. For the rest of us, $17,000 is, is more meaningful. But once you cross that 17,000 mark, you start to get into your gift tax exemption, which also is factored into your $12.92 million deduction. Those are one and the same. So if you gave $5 million, you and your spouse throughout your life, and the deduction this year is $25 million, it's actually now reduced to 20 for your taxable estate. So if your gross estate or taxable estate is $30 million, you would owe estate tax on that $10 million difference. That's how those two numbers work together. So the gift uh, the gift exclusion and your deduction number work off each other. That is one exclusion number for your life. I think this goes back to the goals-based planning stuff and just can't reiterate this enough. It's you have money, you save money, you invest money, whatever. You've got this asset and that can either be consumed. We can turn it back into something I'm going to spend or it's going to be gifted. It's going to be passed on. And this idea is the law tells you how much of this gift tax stuff you're not consuming that you're exempt and free to pass on without taxes. But to the extent that you gift any of it away in your lifetime, you have to be aware of how those rules work and how they stack up because you can't just beat the system. You're not just going to get out of this without being smart and artful. Yeah. One of the things I embarrassingly did not know is like, I thought when you had that $17,000, like before I took the CFP, when you had that $17,000 limit and what you could gift, that if you were gifting more than that, there was like a tax bill due. But that's not the way it works. You know, you're losing, you're using like an exclusion for the future. You do have to file a gift tax return if you give more money than that. But it's not like you're, it's not like you have a tax bill due. I, I thought nobody could give anybody more money than that on an annual basis, but that's not the way it works. Correct. Yeah. Once you exceed that $25 million mark, obviously we're talking about lots of $17,000 gifts or post $17,000 <laughs> gifts. But once you, ex once you pass that, then yes, that gift tax would come into play. Now you need to be smart on how you're giving. If you're, you know, you and your spouse are giving somebody, you know, $50,000, maybe you're passing, you know, give $50,000 to your kids. There are ways that you could avoid using the exclusion and avoid paying the gift tax. You know, you both can each give an independent $17,000. You could do one in December, one in January of the following year to amount the $50,000 total. So there's ways that you can try to, it's not bending the rules. It's just making sure you're using the calendar in the smartest way and most advantageous way to not use any of that exclusion if you don't need to. Yeah. That so becomes if a, I wanted to like, if I wanted to give like a large chunk of money to Justin, like I could give Justin $17,000. I could give Justin's wife $17,000. My wife could give Justin $17,000 she could give Justin's wife. So there's a lot of ways where you can do Correct. this, where you, you can actually give a, a larger sum of money to like a family unit, you know, while still staying under that limit. Correct. When we talk about that calendar cash flow balance sheet thing, the CCBS metaphor that we use all the time at some point, we're talking about this idea of having that calendar mapped out to do this because uh, another example had a family member who had his own children, had a successful business, and they wanted to take care of uh, a sibling's family too. And so because one part of the family was so successful, they wanted to gift money to the other side of the family. And we had to block out on the calendar, here's the things that are susceptible to the gift tax and here's what's not. And so, and Ben, clarify this for me because I halfway remember this. And if I get it wrong, we figured out, okay, you want to give they wanted to pay off the mortgage. They wanted to pay for college and they wanted to make sure if there were medical expenses, there was something else not totally applicable to the gift tax piece. And so it was this dividing line combined with the calendar to actually plan out how to even do this in an artful way to not shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. So you can, so there's two exclusions too, to add to the exclusion list um, around the gift tax, which is giving money direct or paying an institution directly. And there's only two scenarios. One is for education. The other is for um, health services. So you could pay a hospital bill directly on somebody's behalf. It could be $50,000. It doesn't need to count for your exclusion or any gift taxes. 
the same thing applies for an education, um, like a college. So there's, to Matt's point, there is ways around these things or there's ways to work within the laws and legislation to make sure that, hey, we are paying the correct tax on this gift if it exceeds this number, but we can avoid that if we pay the institution directly rather than give the, you know, gift, gift to Matt to pay for college, we'll just pay the college directly. And just, just to get on the record, Justin, since as we are live on, or on YouTube here, like I'm not actually going to give you the $17,000. That was just an example <laughs> I was using of what might oh, happen if gonna, I were to give you the $17,000. You're going to pay it. You're going to pay it directly to the school for his kids to go to college, right? I already told my wife, Jack. She's she's not happy with you now. (laughs) She's listening to us live. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to, you guys talked about trust a little bit before, but I just wanted to pick up on that a little bit because I know when I, when I took the CFP exam, that was another thing that was maybe the most difficult part for me is there's so many of these different types of trust and there's so many different ways to use them. And so beyond the basic stuff about revocable or irrevocable, I'm just wondering if you could talk about some of the ways you might actually use these things in the real world and some of the types of trusts you might commonly use. Yeah. So I would say there's two ways to think about this. And the one is the charitable side and the other is, you know, obviously the non-charitable side. So if we start with the charitable side, you have ways that what you're trying to answer is where do you want the money to go and when, and do you need an income from that? So if you think about things like a a CRT, charitable remainder trust, the charity is going to get the asset after a specific time period. You're going, the money's going to go irrevocably into a trust. Asset or income is going to be paid to a non-charitable beneficiary. And then at the end of a time period, asset's going to go to a trust and it gets removed from your estate. You have the opposite of that, the inverse, the charitable lead trust. So the charity would get some income for a spe- specified period. And then at the end of that period, the asset would move to the beneficiary. Then you have two of the other, Jack, I know you love the CFP content. So this is, was one of my favorite things on the exam was donor advice fund that caught me by surprise. I didn't do any reading on that before the exam. And of course I had three questions on it, but this is going to allow you ultimate control. You get an immediate deduction today and that, you know, donor advice funds is a wide spectrum. So you can do it through large institutions. You could do it through. Um, some smaller institutions too, but it gives you ultimate flexibility of when the assets are released to the charity. Maybe it's for milestones after certain time periods. You can get pretty customized with these. The last one that's the most fun that, you know, if you think about the Zuckerbergs of the world for private foundations, if you have a large enough, you know, donation or a large enough gift that you're trying to provide for you know, a philanthropic need, private foundation can fit that. It gets talked about quite often because it gives you the ultimate custom customizability of this entire scenario. You set this up, you get the gift, you know, you get the deductions on giving money to this charity. And you also get to choose how the charity uses the dollars because, you know, you could be in charge of this or you could put the person in charge of this. So if you see... A lot of, you know, the, the billionaires will talk about giving away their shares to charity. All of them. Zuckerberg says this a lot before he passes away. I can't tell you definitively what he is doing, but I can with some degree of certainty tell you that he has a private foundation set up and that's where all those shares are going. You can also make sure that the rest of your family is taken care of on a payroll system for from charities like that and providing value to that charity, you know, for for generations. So that's how I think about kind of the charitable side. Are there any of these that you guys see used like the most in your practice? Um, you know, like I hear donor advised funds a lot. Like I just tend to hear that. I don't know if that means they're widely used, but is there any of these that are more used than others? On the gifts, it, back to the gifts and consumption idea. So if I'm not going to consume it, then I'm thinking about making it as a gift. If I'm making it as a gift, I'm trying to be intentional. We're having this conversation not as accountants, not as attorneys, but as people who don't want the gift to just be to Uncle Sam. That's not to say we don't want to pay our taxes. We don't want to do our part. Absolutely. I really like that my toilet flushes. I'm really happy to pay that tax, I promise. But when we're thinking about the Zuckerberg scenario or thinking about people who have amassed money in private investments or whatever else, the decision on what goes back into the tax base versus what goes into something charitable or private that they can control is a real thing. 
the reason I take it back to gifts and consumption is you don't have to have billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars to think about what you might want to do besides give it to your kids or maybe even your spouse, depending on your situation. So it's not unheard of for people with, I'm going to say, smaller net worths. So you've saved something. Just because you can't go out and create a private family foundation doesn't mean you can't use a donor advised fund because you want to make sure part of your nest egg gets spread out to charity charities that you care about beyond your lifetime. Um, the layers of this are really driven by the charitable tendencies of the individuals and families that we work with and what the goals of those charitable tendencies are. Can't, can't say this enough. The values of the family often drive this. So if it's a family that always goes out and does Habitat for Humanity trips together, cares about a local soup kitchen, or cares about an animal shelter or something like that, Part of the passing of those values is the passing of cutting those checks and staying involved in those organizations across future generations. These trusts and these vehicles, whether it's a donor advised fund or a private foundation, can help allow for those values to be passed down through future generations to make gifts, I don't want to say irrespective of the size of the estate, but this is where that conversation plays in. What are we passing on as a gift and what is the methodology for the way we want that to be distributed going forward? The point on private foundations, you know, it got me thinking of uh, Buffett and, you know, he's transferring. I was just reading as you were talking, Matt, I think 85% of his wealth to four different or five different foundations. So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, then there's the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, the Howard G. Buffett Foundation, and the Susan A. Buffett Foundation. And there's might be another charity in there as well. But you know, it's it, it, it for people that have a lot of wealth in stock. You know, it's not just cash. It's like in, in Buffett's case, like he's actually transferring the stock that he owns. And I know as part of um, estate planning, you know, a lot of people that have a lot of wealth own a lot of stocks, and so those stocks might go to fund or support some of these philanthropic places too. Because you're not selling the stock. Like make make the really the really hard and fast thing on this is if I have if I have 500,000 or 500 million dollars inside of a company stock, the idea is when I sell that or my beneficiaries sell it, there might be a, a tax liability aside to it. There might also be on date of death some type of estate tax levied against it. But when I give that to a charity, to a not a not for-profit entity, they can now liquidate that thing and put those proceeds to use without tax consequence. And so when Buffett or, or any family, and it, cases where it's just a family who doesn't have kids and they want to be intentional with this stuff, they can set up various vehicles and entities to basically make a tax-efficient transfer, reduce the tax drag owed back to Uncle Sam to help fund these organizations. And that's kind of what they're invented for in the first place. Good number of the people who listen to this might own businesses. And I'm just wondering, other than what we've covered so far, are there anything specific to business owners that they should keep in mind when we talk, think about all this stuff? Anything we left out, Ben, for the business owners besides uh, have that buy-sell, have that succession agreement, have a good operating agreement. Don't screw over your business partners. Don't dupe your family with the alpaca farm. <laughs> what else? The, I mean, I, I, for the list that you just gave, the only other thing I'd add is a you know a financial power of attorney. Somebody that understands the complexities of your business, especially if you're running an alpaca farm, who knows what you need to buy, how wages are paid, how contracts are you know developed, what future contracts are developed. You need somebody that's going to understand the complex financial system. So that's the other thing that I would add to the buy sell agreement, succession plan, things that you should should have in place. Yeah, and you know the, the buy sell is probably one of the big one in that group. Like it's a surprise, like a lot of people don't have those. And when you don't have those, you can have a mess on your hands um, in, in terms of how to handle things. So I think like having that in place for business owners is, is probably really, really important because you just never know, you know, people get along now, but maybe they won't in the future. People die when you don't expect them to. There's so many things that come in there and then you've got a problem on the business side um, because you didn't didn't do that in advance. I can't tell you how many conversations we have on on a regular basis with business owners, especially on like fast growth trajectories, because you want to have the valuation methodology and other stuff, especially like, like pick on you guys for a second. I'm not asking for the documents, but I'm just saying it's like this idea of you have families, you have people you're taking care of. 
So if one of you is all of a sudden gone tomorrow, you got to make sure the business can still run and you got to make sure that the family gets like a fair shake on what this thing was worth at that snapshot in time. Insurance can be used for this. There's policies that can be put in place, but depending on the growth trajectory of the business, recent meetings just in the last like week with some people where the growth curve is steep. So we have to review with with the insurance agent, with the attorney, how we revisit those policies to make sure that if something happens tomorrow, each business owner's family gets bought out of the company at a fair shake to those people. Because we also don't need like the other spouses or kids stepping in and being like, well, now that I'm 50% owner in this business, right, right, let me fine. tell you a thing or two on how to quantitatively <laughs> invest people's money. Yeah, nobody needs that. I, I'd say the important part there is two points of liquidity. The liquidity that Matt said for your family and the liqu liquidity for the business. If you could provide those two in a fair manner, then then we're, you know, we're doing right by by the client and by the business. Just one more area I wanted to cover, which is on, on the tax side, I think I like in the last few years I've heard some some rumblings about like the law maybe changing in terms of how the estate tax works or the limits or things around that. Like is is there anything that's like on the agenda right now that might change this substantially? Yeah, 2026 is a big year for, you know, it's called the tax sunset. So we think about, well, we will at current state, the beginning of 2026, revert back to the Tax Cut and Job Act era. That is for tax brackets. That is also for the estate exclusion. So the $12.92 million number actually goes down significantly. So the projection today is that would go down to about $6.8 million about 14 million for a couple. So if, when you think about that reversion back down, the clients that were in the 10 to $25 million range of estates were in the clear. Well, now they're not. Now there, there needs to be significant estate planning done to make sure that assets try to avoid as much of that estate plan as possible. Now, 2026 is a long political time away. We will have an election before then. And there is always possibility that new legislation is put into place to either extend the current plan or make it permanent or make other adjustments to it. But as of as of right now, it stands that the tax sunset plan will will take place on January 2026. I'm just wondering, like, theoretically, because this is something I struggle with a lot, too. Like, how do you guys think about, like, in terms of planning in general, like these potential changes? So, you know, we've always got like potential changes to the state tax or potential changes to tax rates. And I'm like, on one hand, if it comes to pass, you've got to be doing planning around that. But on the other hand, like a lot of times they don't like this example in 2026, there's a decent chance they'll get together and pass something between now and then. Like, how do you think about planning when there's such a wide range of potential scenarios and it's like this political variable that you can't control of controlling it? It's like the debt ceiling, but it actually matters, you mean? <laughs> so... Maybe that was too harsh, <laughs> but, but, but it, it's, so I, I say that because it's a political, it's a political tool that's being leveraged in a political way to motivate voters. So great, cool. Thanks politicians for being awesome. You know, gold stars for all of you on this. The reality in planning is it's a lot like everything else. We're dealing with variables that have to have values that are slotted in. So we know if you have a private company being valued in a certain way or a public company being valued in a certain way and your current estate is worth whatever, then in the estate planning formula, because that's basically what this reduces to, an estate planning formula, we say if you die tomorrow, this is what happens. If you die in 30 years or 20 years under the current rules, this is what happens. If you get sick, this is what happens. If you get sued, this is what happens. So now taking those variables and understanding that the values are going to be dynamic in time because we don't know when those triggering events will occur, we're going to use the current cases. If someone has fears or concerns, we'll do a scenario analysis of what those future cases might look like. If we're at 2025 and it looks like that sunset's going to happen, we're going to be running a lot of scenario analysis to say who's exposed, who's not, whose current trusts and gift strategies still make sense, whose don't. Do we need to get attorneys ready to get redrafting on stuff? And that's what it boils down to. The, the values are inherently unknowable. Um, however, the variables are all knowable, and that is you got accounts, they have some value, you got a tax bill sometime. Death and taxes, they're the certain part. How long you're going to live, when you're going to die, if you're going to get sick, if you're going to get sued, those become 
the variables. And if I, if, <laughs> if in a line I can land this, this private jet that I'm flying in is it's the end of the world as I know it. And when we do these plans, it's, that's how we get to, I feel fine. The Michael Stipe Zen is only, I feel fine. If I at least I have a way, if I have a formula to deal with this crap, that's inevitably coming. I just don't know which version of the future I'm going to get. Yeah. And the, the one part I'll add to that around scenario analysis is this fast tracking, utilizing the current exclusion. So currently we're at roughly 25 million. We're going to revert back down to 14 million. If nothing happens, we can still use that 25 million prior to 2026. So fast tracking some of those strategies is what makes the most sense. That doesn't make sense for everybody, but maybe it's setting up the right family limited partnership. I know we haven't covered that yet. Super complex, but can fit in the right scenario to say, how do we move assets from one generation to the next, use this exclusion maybe where possible before we get to 2026, it goes back down to 14 million. Then we have to devise a new strategy as we're heading into that time period. But to Matt's point, we know coming into 2026, we're going to have a pretty good idea in 2025 what's coming. If there's impending legislation, then fast tracking and some of it hedging our bet to make sure that we're reducing the risk profile for a client, then typically that would make the most sense. But these are so unique that it's they're long conversations for devising the right custom plan. So Ben, the four-way has officially brought us to the longest education of a financial planner episode ever. So you're, 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 you're helping, uh, you're helping produce some good content with us here. We, we appreciate you joining us. And I think, um, for me, you know, I'm not going to try to summarize everything because I'd never be able to do it, but I, I just, I think for me, the biggest lesson here was in estate planning, you have sort of where we started the, like those key elements, the will, the living will, the power of attorney, the healthcare directive, and you know possibly a living trust. And then after there, as estates get more complicated and situations change and scenarios change, you know the estate planning process can be very comprehensive, um, very complicated, and there's a lot of other things you know that can come in and out of of these estate plans. Which is why, not to make this an advertisement, but working with people like Matt. And Ben or other financial planners that understand this stuff, that understand the changing landscape, that can help someone sort of think long term, think about their family, think about their legacy. I mean, those are all the reasons why estate plans exist. So hopefully we did a good job of covering all this. If there's anything else you guys want us to talk about in the future, please let us know and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at CultishCreative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.